thank you for coming to listen to my talk, and Stanley, thank you for inviting me. Uh, so as you said, I'm a social anthropologist and a sociologist by initial training. And what I'll be talking about today is my ongoing research project. Um, and I'll talk about the social life of childhood obesity from three different perspectives. So one would be the academic field, which would mainly be my own research and my project. Uh, it's challenges, the methodology I use, and how it has been changing over time. So it's a kind of a story of me trying to understand childhood obesity in Poland. Then the second perspective would be the public uh, and state discourses in Poland about childhood obesity. Um, so what is childhood obesity to state actors? And then the third one would be the experiences of children who are overweight and obese in Poland. But I want to start with an ethnographic vignette, of course. Um, it comes from a weightless summer camp for children that I attended last summer. Uh, it lasted for two weeks. It was a commercial summer camp, so parents paid for their children's attendance. And it gathered around 50 children from all over Poland, aged between 10 and 16. So this particular field note uh, comes from the uh, workshop with the dietitian I attended. Each group of children attended two of those workshops, and that was the second one. Uh, and it was for an older group. So uh, in the situation that I'll be describing, there were around over a dozen of 14 to 16-year-olds in the room. So I'll just read it out. Oh, and I should point out that all the quotes and all the field notes, I translated them from Polish into English. Mm. So I'll just read it out. Uh, we recounted what was discussed during the first workshop, talked about the composition of meals, how important it is to eat regularly and to eat loads of veggies. Then it was turned to calculate your own BMI. All the children were measured and weighted at the beginning of the summer camp, so Anya, the dietitian, had all the data written down. She explained how one calculates the BMI, that it's a ratio of weight to height, and helped them with the calculations. She also explained that for adults the BMI numbers are static, but because children and teenagers are still growing and their bodies are changing, their overweight and obesity is measured based on uh, BMI percentiles according to their age. It is optimal to be between underweight and overweight, she said, but we can also calculate what would be the ideal weight for your height to which you can aspire to. So everyone received a chart, a chart um, like that. So on the left you had the BMI, on the uh, bottom children there was the, ages, the children's age, and then they were able to find themselves on the chart. Everyone received such a chart, and once they knew their BMI, they were supposed to find themselves on the chart. Oh no, I have 32, I don't fit into the chart, commented 15-year-old Ignace. She rested his head on his shoulders rather miserably. Another boy, Marek, just found out his BMI is 36 and seemed genuinely shocked and saddened. The boys started joking around and making fun of each other, clearly as a way to deal with this difficult situation. They compared the results, and Mark happily pointed out that Tomek's BMI is 39. He danced playfully, happy that his results were not the worst. The girls, on the other hand, were rather silently contemplating what they have just found out. Many of them hid their charts and their BMI numbers, and seemed ashamed to share it. Dagmara said to someone, but you're a skinny girl, you have complexes. This actually makes me rather sad, because how am I supposed to feel being much fatter than you are? I was not surprised that many girls were not overweight at all, but they were convinced that they are fat. Both girls and boys started asking the dietitian about their ideal weight, what that would be. 14-year-old Ola, who was within the proper BMI section, with surprise commented, but does it take into account our self-esteem? Because this, and she pointed to the chart, this tells me that I have to lose 10 kilograms to obtain my ideal weight. The room was buzzing with emotions, sadness, anxiety, surprise, even disgust. 
And I was sad as well. I had been feeling very uncomfortable throughout this whole process. And I couldn't shake the feeling that I was just witnessed how obese children are made. So this is just a glimpse into my fieldwork and into my research that I'll, that I'll talk more about uh, later on. Uh, but I want to start by talking more about my research project. Um, as Stanley already mentioned, it stems from my PhD that I did at SARS. Uh, I finished it three years ago. Uh, and it was on the feeding anxieties related to children in Warsaw. So I did ethnographic work with families and in primary schools, but also looked at the food industry, the non-governmental organizations and the media. And I was interested in how all of those actors influenced how children eat. Uh, and most of all, I worked with children between the ages of six, so six and 12. So uh, I very purposefully did not want to study obesity while doing my doctoral research, but people constantly kept asking me about it. It was somewhere there all the time. So when I finished it and I was thinking about my postdoc research, it kind of came as a natural next step. So I started this postdoc on childhood obesity uh, with a background mainly in anthropology of food and anthropology of childhood or childhood studies. This project is funded by the National Science Center in Poland, and it takes a critical look at the social dynamics of childhood obesity in Poland. So I have two main questions that I engage with. One is um, how and why has childhood obesity been constructed as a public problem? And then another one is how do different actors, especially children, experience childhood obesity? So the aim of my, of my research, of my project, is not to solve childhood obesity or to identify its causes even, but it's rather to engage critically with it in its many shapes and forms. Uh, in terms of theoretical uh, framework and influences, you might be familiar with Tina Moffat's paper, uh, The Childhood Obesity Epidemic, Health Crisis or Social Construction. So she positions, as you might know, uh, two different uh, ways of thinking and framing about framing childhood obesity. One is uh, health seeing it as a health crisis and thinking about it as an epidemic. And the, the other one constructs, sees childhood obesity as solely uh, a social construction. And she positions both as too, too extreme and kind of urges us uh, to think about a middle way, to think about childhood obesity. And that's something that I've been trying to do through this project. Uh, so while I'm still interested uh, in the social constructions of public problems, so how in Poland childhood obesity is framed and constructed, for instance, in public discourses or narratives, how it's become a kind of a moral panic, though I'm very careful with using that word and that phrase. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, and I'm building on medical anthropology and medical sociology uh, in kind of trying to understand how fatness has been medicalized in Poland, um, while at the same time not denying that childhood obesity might have health consequences, but also agreeing with some of the tenets of health at every, si uh, at every size movement. So while I think that childhood obesity is constructed both on a discursive and practical scale, I also think that this is embodied and it exists both biologically and socially. And so I'm mainly interested in children's embodied experiences of obesity. And here my experience with, of working with children and from childhood studies comes in handy uh, with its basic assumption that children are very independent actors of social life and partake into social life. So in order to understand issues related to them, we actually have to talk to them as well and look at what they have to think. So this research kind of asks, what is childhood obesity in diverse spaces and contexts and for various actors? And here it builds on Anne-Marie uh, works uh, on multiple ontologies. So for instance, I'm interested in how do mothers and health professionals experience childhood obesity? What is it when, you, when we look at the statistics and measures? And finally, what is it for children who are fat and how do they experience it? So in terms of ethnographic research, this, this, this project is based on ethnographic research and I'm still, as I said, it's still ongoing, so I'm in the midst of doing it. 
Uh, I have done interviews with health professionals and experts, so that would include dietitians, nutritionists, doctors, psychologists, as well as representatives from advocacy groups, all of whom work with children and families. Uh, another part is participant observation, and here I mainly focus on children and families. And initially the focus was supposed to be only on children between the ages of 6 and 12, uh, but for practical reasons I, I open up the groups. I work with teenagers as well, but not younger children. Um, and the observations happen at family consultations with health experts, uh, so with uh, the doctors, dietitians, psychologists and physical trainers, and at the weight loss camp that I just mentioned. So I attended one weight loss camp last summer and I hope to go to another one uh, this coming summer. And another part of the research is content and discourse analysis, so looking at the regulations and the educational programs, the reports and booklets and studying media as well, and that part is, uh, is to come. And there are many practical and methodological issues that are important to consider when one studies childhood obesity, because how does one actually study childhood obesity or children with obesity? Uh, one issue is actually studying obesity and dealing with this, uh, even the phrase, because it might be difficult to study some, something that one wants to maybe even question or look critically at while using the name. Uh, but at the same time, uh, this fact that, that fatness has been medicalized actually legitimizes my research. I would probably not get funding for this if it wasn't considered a public health problem. Uh, and the research very quickly turned from research on obesity to research on obesity and overweight. And I'll talk a bit more about that later on, but I very quickly realized that they are con constantly and always collated and, and always have to be uh, looked at together. And then for practical reasons, it actually became research on weight loss, uh, because I couldn't really access families or children who are fat or um, medically might be considered obese and kind of see someone on the street and say, oh, I think you're fat, can I talk to you? Um, I had to go through different institutions of weight loss. So that also kind of changed what I initially wanted to do for practical reasons. Another thing is my own positionality as a woman who is young and looks even younger uh, and is not obese, and also as an adult with every children with whom I work with. Um, so that's an important aspect of this research as well. And the final part is the ethical <coughs> aspect of working with children on such a sensitive topic. So here again, I build all of my experience from my doctoral research here. And just very briefly, uh, I want to contextualize Poland. Then you're probably familiar with all of that, but just to give you a kind of glimpse into it. Poland has gone through um, post-socialist transitions since the late 80s in the 1990s. Uh, which entailed uh, a change from economy of shortage to economy of abundance. And that, for instance, was related to privati privatization processes and the entrance of many Western companies into Poland, such as Nestle, Danone, McDonald's, and many others, but also entailed many socioeconomic inequalities that grew, also because the state withdrew from wel welfare support. Um, there was also nutrition transition, so more processed food, more meat, and more sugar. But at the same time, Poland, uh, a lot of uh, families in Poland still relied on homemade meals. And then a change from collective thinking to individual responsibility framework and neoliberal policies. Um, uh, of course, one could argue that during socialism, the collective thinking was still only a framework and that people still relied on their own informal economies of exchange, for instance. Uh, but in, in any case, the framework did change in many respects. And another important thing for understanding the current situation of Poland is that it accessed the European Union in 2004. And I'll comment on that later on as well. So what I just want to point out is that Poland has gone through very rapid and very substantial changes in the last 30 years that, in, that influenced the context of my research. 
So what I want to talk about now is our public discourses in Poland. Uh, so one th important thing is that they always have to be considered within the context of um, international discourses on childhood obesity. So WHO, for instance, or European Commission have been influencing the way that those issues are framed in Poland. And for instance, since early 2000s or mid 2000s, even urged different member, member states and the government in different countries to take action related to childhood obesity. So in a way, it occurred in Poland because WHO and EU told Polish government that it's a problem. Uh, so in Poland, there are medical and nutritional discourses dominate and childhood obesity is considered uh, to be an epidemic uh, and health is kind of equated with fitness and slimness, so it's similar to many other places. Um, in 2012, that was the moment that the, again WHO research demonstrated that Poland has the fastest pace of raising childhood obesity rates in Europe. And that was the moment that it really was put on agenda. People really got uh, both interested in it and, and, and kind of frightened by it and, and started talking more about it. So, and that was the time when I did my, field, my doctoral field work, hence why everyone asked me about childhood obesity probably. Although one doctor that I, that I interviewed, she pointed out that she saw a correlation uh, with raising childhood obesity rates and entering uh, the European Union in 2004. So that process has, might have started earlier on. Just to give you some numbers, um, this, this graph comes from um, a report uh, that's a part of a childhood obesity surveillance initiative, uh, so it's research done on eight-year-olds. And here I think it's interesting that you could see that depending on how you actually uh, calculate it and what kind of cutoffs for BMI percentiles you use, you end up with different results. So if we base it on the WHO results, uh, we end up having almost one-third of uh, Polish eight-year-olds uh, being overweight and obese, but if we base it on the Polish um, mm, database, which is OLAF, uh, then it's uh, one-fifth. And I think it's interesting because it just shows the numbers are never really completely objective. Uh, and then it's used, those numbers are used in many diverse ways in Poland, because for instance, the media and different media outlets uh, report different numbers and they never add up. I actually tried to follow the numbers and see where they come from, and they're often, I have no idea. They just bring the numbers out of, I don't know, from where. Uh, and just to give you a context, the obesity itself among children is estimated to be around 3.5 3 to 4%. So the rest would be um, overweight children. Uh, and here is the map of, um, the, the map you see in the middle, uh, that's Poland uh, in and its administrative regions. And this is just one of the ways how uh, childhood obesity is presented in, uh, in the newspapers. That, comes, that infographic comes from one of the main newspapers. And then the, the kind of phrase, phrase on the top says, our obese children. And you could see a sad boy um, who is contemplating how obese children in Poland are apparently. Although the differences between the regions were not explained, so I wouldn't want to uh, do any guesses related to that. And in terms of uh, gender, uh, younger children, uh, it's more or less similar, and for teenagers, it's more often, much more often boys than girls who are overweight or obese. Actually, um, as I've heard a few doctors saying, we don't really have a, an obesity problem among teenage girls, and I, I'm going to go back to that later on as well. In terms of social class, there is a correlation with working class uh, backgrounds and uh, overweight and obesity, although there's not that much research done on that on children. It's more often done on adults, so it's 
Um, it, it's probably comparable, but we're not sure. And in terms of rural-urban dimensions, it used to be that it was uh, more common in the urban context, but that has been changing as well. So now it would be more common in the rural context. Um, I was surprised when I started this research to find out that there is a lack of fat or size acceptance movements. So there's really no space for anything like half at every size movement. There are very indi few individual blocks, for instance, of people um, fighting for, for body acceptance um, and things like that. But uh, other than that, it's very limited. And there are no support groups for parents. While there are many support groups for parents of children with other diseases, for instance, which begs the question, I think, whether obesity is in fact considered to be a disease within the society. And I'm not sure it is. Uh, so in the discourses about childhood obesity in Poland, food and diet next to physical activity are pointed out as the main reasons leading to obesity. As, and the energy balance, or rather the energy imbalance perspective dominates. Um, and just to briefly mention the state interventions to give you a kind of a context of, of, of what happens practically. Um, there are very few state interventions actually that are funded by the National Health Fund. One of them are temporary rehabilitation stays in sanatoriums and hospitals. So children could go there, that would last usually around three weeks, and children could go and participate in such a stay. Uh, but, and I've been trying to get in touch with those places that organize it to research that as well, but it's, it's been tricky so far. Uh, and I'm not, also not sure about the numbers. There are some numbers I found that in 2015 there were around 2,000 children that used it, but that's not confirmed. But that gives you a kind of a, a, a sense that it's a very limited, it's not that many people use it. And then another thing that's funded by the National Health Fund are bariatric surgeries. Uh, but there have been only a little over a dozen teenagers who have gone through bariatric surgeries in Poland. So it's also not a very uh, common um, way of dealing with it. And again, that's something that I hope to still research. So most of the energy and most of the funding actually goes into prevention. Uh, so this, as I mentioned, 3.5 to 4% of children who are obese in Poland, they don't really have much support uh, that they get from, from the state. Um, and the prevention usually focuses on schools, so there's there multiple uh, uh, educational programs implemented in schools, by, both by different um, state institutions, by the food industry, by non-governmental organizations, and most of them, I think, and also I was told by many experts, are not really very effective. Uh, and the prevention is based on this idea that um, food is only view, viewed through the perspective of nutrition, uh, and the society, both adults and children, are positioned as not knowledgeable. So in this is a kind of food literacy approach which does not really take into account other factors related to the socioeconomic situation, class and gender likes and dislikes that people have related to food. So what I would like to show you now uh, is an ad that was created by the Ministry of Health in Poland and it's part of the, again, kind of information campaign. And it was um, introduced in December last year and you could just uh, see it on TV, that basically it was just as an, uh, run as an ad on TV. And it's in Polish, but I'll explain in a second what it is about. So it started by them deciding whether they're gonna walk or drive to buy their food, they decide to drive, and then they make an order. So they order fries and hamburgers and milkshake. 
And then the person who takes the order says, okay, so I'm gonna repeat what you just ordered. And she lists different diseases. So she says, so you ordered obesity, diabetes, colorectal cancer, hypertension, lack of physical, um, lack of base physical fitness. Are you sure? Are you sure this is what you want to order? And here's what happens next. So the slogan uh, reads, uh, you have a choice, do not serve yourself an illness. That's what they uh, say at the end. And so I think it demonstrates well that although there is a very slowly uh, growing recognition that childhood obesity is connected to structural problems and influenced by socioeconomic situation of the family, for instance, and there are some public health initiatives to tax sodas and junk food, for instance, but it doesn't seem that they're going to work. And the main narrative positions families, parents and children as responsible for this problem. Uh, while at the same time, as I already mentioned, there is not really much support that families could get from uh, public health, for instance. Uh, even dietary advice is something that we have to go to privately, it's not uh, funded by the state. So, and even if the food industry, as we saw in this, uh, in this ad, uh, is recognized as one of the causes of, or might, uh, possible causes of childhood obesity, still the responsibility for making the right and good choices when one buys food and consumes food rests on individuals. In the same way as deciding whether you will walk or take a car, it's still considered an individual choice. Um, and it's not only that parents and mothers in particular are, are made responsible for their children's obesity, and that has been already studied uh, in the literature, and it's certainly the case in Poland, and that's something that I'll be writing about as well. But what my research demonstrates is that, is that it's actually children who are more and more made responsible for their obesity. And it's not that they are blamed for becoming obese, but they're blamed for staying obese. And that's what I would like to focus on in the rest of my talk to talk about children's experiences in the context of individual responsibility framework, uh, to ask how do they deal with it, how is it framed, and why is it difficult. And again, I would like to write, uh, read uh, a short ethnographic vignette that comes from my observations uh, uh, of, consultations, of consultations. So I've joined 17-year-old Kasia and her mother at their visits with health professionals. It turned out that Kasia is hypoglycemic. One of the issues that emerged was that how both mother and daughter, how they like drinking Coca-Cola. The mother, as she put it, is addicted to Coke, and the daughter drinks it as well. When we were at the dietitian's office, she said, well, it's always there. We drink it with the main meal, it's on the table. The dietitian started explaining that the mom began drinking Coke when she was already an adult because it was simply not available before. So the health consequence, consequences of what will be uh, sorry. So the health consequences of that will be visible when she will be an older person, when there are many other other health problems anyway. While Kasia started drinking Coca-Cola probably at a very young age, so its negative consequences on her health are already visible. Then at the psychologist's office, Kasia heard, "Drinking Coca-Cola is your habit, separate from what your mom does. It's all up to you. It's your your own decision." If your health is important to you, and I hope it is, because you are just at the beginning of your life really, you have to start paying attention to those things. It's just a matter of deciding. Make the right choice and look for a substitute, something you will drink instead of Coca-Cola when your family drinks Coca-Cola. So the psychologist frames this again as a matter of individual choice without taking into account all the structural issues that shape and influence such a choice. For instance, other family members and what's available at home. 
And here's another example. Uh, this also comes from the, uh, um, the observations of the health consultations. Uh, it was their first visit. Parents of nine-year-old Natalia were worried that she gained a lot of weight recently and wanted to do a checkup, and should there be a problem to find out what to do. The visit was also prompted by the unpleasant comments Natalia heard from her peers at school, especially during the PE classes. She looked completely normal to me, but I have learned by now that my judgment is much different than the medical guys. They learned she's slightly overweight. We were in the room with a dietitian discussing Natalia's daily food practices and how to change them. At some point, a dietitian pointed out, it's really up to you. If you want to make some changes, you have to take responsibility for it. You really should limit eating sweets to just once a week, not more. With tears in her eyes, Natalia shyly nodded. So nine-year-old Natalia is told here that there is something wrong with her because she's slightly overweight and that she herself needs to change it. When she was asked why she wanted to lose weight, why did she come to participate, um, why did she come to those consultations, she said that she just found out that day from her dad that he's taking her to be a part of it. Uh, so it wasn't really her choice in any way. And pressed by the psychologist, she said, I want to lose weight because I want to attend artistic gymnastics. A friend of mine who is obese, she started attending gymnastics, but they told her she's too fat and threw her out. And I don't want that to happen to me as well. So this is just a very tiny glimpse uh, into the social lives of fat children or children considered to be fat, who often experience diverse forms of stigmatization and abuse, especially verbal abuse, but also non-verbal abuse. And there are various motivations behind trying to lose weight. Uh, usually what I've heard children uh, repeat was kind of the narratives that adults give them or what their parents say. So they often talk, for instance, at that weight loss camp that I um, attended and spent time at, they often said that they want to learn the proper food habits and learn to be physically active. So they use the narratives that adults give them. Here's, for instance, what 11-year-old Ada told me when I asked why did she come to the weight loss camp. She said, since I was five years old, my mom kept telling me I should watch my diet. I do gymnastics and different sports, but I'm addicted to sweets. I'm really hooked on them. I went to see a dietitian, but it did not help. So when my mom suggested this summer camp, I knew it would be difficult, but I decided I should try. I finally have to take responsibility and get the grip on myself. And Ada is an interesting example of a person who is actually very fit, but is obese. And I was really surprised by this language some of the children use. So for instance, this grown-up narrative of getting a grip on oneself sounded really bizarre coming from a nine-year-old. And also hearing that somebody's addicted to sweets, that kind of comes more and more often now. It's, it's kind of strange to hear coming up from children. But let's stay with Ada for a moment longer just to see what did she find out at the weight loss camp. Here's what I wrote down. So Ada told me that she now tries to count how many spoons of sugar she eats daily. She learned during the workshop with the dietitian that we should only eat five teaspoons of sugar daily. She googled what we had for breakfast and estimated how much sugar it has and found out that just by eating breakfast we already consumed over a dozen teaspoons of sugar which exceeded the daily limit. She's not sure what to do about that and finds that very discouraging. Um, so again, uh, children often learn that what they are supposed to do is unattainable. And it's also because, as, as with that example of ideal weight that children are supposed to aspire to that I started this talk, children often take the dietary advice word for word. So they really, really try to implement everything they're told, and that's unattainable. Um, and it's not only that it's very difficult to turn what's on paper into practice, but children's practices in their lives always have to be seen within the context of their family. Uh, so children might have uh, very different dispositions to believe and to act, and here I kind of bring Bernard Leir's work and his um, exploration of Bourdieu's theory, 
So children might have a disposition uh, to believe in the fact that they should eat in a different way. So they may know that they are supposed to eat in a different way, but they might not have the disposition to act in that way. Because, for instance, their parents do not eat in that way, or they don't have food like that at home, etc., etc. And here's what a uh, 15-year-old Magda told me. So she said, it's hard. My situation is difficult because my mom can't cook, really. And I eat a lot of artificial food, ready-made meals, and I do not have much influence on it. I sometimes dream about eating pork chops with potatoes, which for other people would be nothing unusual, but for me it's such a wow. But whatever my mom does, it's bad, and I have to attempt to redo it myself or eat something store-bought. So I often heard examples from, for instance, psychologists that when families, when children go on a diet or are supposed to change their food practices, the child is the only person who does that and the rest of the family keeps eating in the same way. Uh, especially fathers uh, are the persons that are very reluctant to change their food habits. Uh, and the child, for instance, would hear, eat your green stuff and we will eat our normal food. Or I've heard other cases when there was a se separate shelf in the fridge for food only for that child while the rest of the family kept eating what they were eating before. So it's not in any way celebrated, but it's rather treated as a form of a punishment. Uh, and the kind of support children get, of course, uh, is important for their experiences, either of obesity and overweight or of uh, losing weight. And one mom, for instance, when she found out that her son is severely obese, she said, well, I knew it would get bad, I knew that, but he's 16 years old, there's not much I can do. I cannot control him. He needs to take responsibility for himself. So again, we have this notion of responsibility and children uh, being responsible for, for themselves. But also, don't get me wrong, I'm very far and I wouldn't want to blame mothers or parents for, for that. I, I really, I, uh, I, I wouldn't want to do that. Because I think that they're actually uh, in, in a very difficult situation quite often. They don't have any structural support that I already mentioned. And they often struggle with juggling their multiple roles um, and responsibilities in dealing with a double or triple, triple burden. And those situations are also very difficult. Here's what another mom told me. She said about her daughter, She's very overweight, according to medical standards. I hope she will take a critical look at herself at some point, but then I want her to accept herself. She's a big girl and she accepts it now, and I think that's good, so I'm not sure how to handle it. And so the daughter's medical results are all good. Uh, she doesn't have diabetes, she doesn't have any diseases, but she's overweight. And the mom, is the mom supposed to tell her daughter that there is something wrong with her because she's too big, according to both medical and aesthetic standards? How to balance taking care that your child has a good self-esteem and accepts herself and the medical and aesthetic standards of healthy and beautiful bodies, that's something that parents and mothers especially actually have to deal with. Uh, and overweight is treated already as a very, very alarming thing in Poland, the way that it's framed, uh, because it supposedly might lead to obesity and other diseases. And I, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in the end, but I think that this uh, kind of bringing together obesity and overweight is something that's worth exploring more. So I've mentioned parents, but of course siblings and grandparents who, have, who often take care of children in Poland are, all, are also important, uh, influence uh, their experiences as well, but there are also peers, that's a very important group as well. Here's what uh, Kuba told me, for instance. Yeah, we often go out to eat something Chinese or kebabs or pizza, and I want to go, so I eat it, even though I know I should not. So food, of course, plays an extremely important role and it's extremely important for mediating social relationships that children have. In my doctoral research, I often saw children, for instance, going to a school shop, buying food and sharing it. And the going there and the sharing of it 
was much more important than the actual food that they ate. It's all about the social experiences built around it. And children care about their social status that is often expressed with food. So for instance, and other stories I heard are that if a child is supposed to bring a lunchbox that contains a salad and fresh cut veggies, while other children eat sandwiches or crisps and other snacks, they are ashamed of it and they wouldn't want to do it. Um, and here's what Magda, who we already met, said. It's different for me. When I go out with friends or just go out to eat, I'm ashamed to eat in public. I worry that people will think, oh, such a fatty and she eats fast food or something like that. So even if I'm hungry, I won't eat. And that doesn't help with the regularity of meals. So this illustrates well how social context influences the individual, so to speak, individual choices, and also how the representation of fat people in the public sphere often actually makes it difficult for them to follow any weight loss regimes, even if they would want to. And that's visible, for instance, in the stigma that many of them experience when they attend health institutions, but also um, in terms of access to physical activity. So a lot of children, for instance, would not want to attend physical activity classes uh, because they are ashamed of changing in front of their peers or they feel that they fail at those classes. They're always the worst and chosen as the last ones for team groups, for instance, so they prefer not to attend at all. And children are anxious about these choices, about being responsible for their own health and their body. Now, when I talked to 16-year-old Anya during a weightless camp, she recalled the recent visit to the grocery store. So at that weightless camp, children were not allowed to eat anything in between the five meals that we were provided. But they sometimes, we, we kind of together went to the grocery store when they wanted to buy water, even though it was also provided, or some shampoo or something that they might need it. So here's what Anya told me. She said, I really fear this, that when I'm back at home, I will want to eat something, and I will decide that one thing won't matter much, and I'll eat one chocolate bar or some crisps, and then I will want to eat more. I also want to eat it now, but I know I cannot. When we were in the grocery store, I knew I could not. I was thinking what I would do if we were alone in that shop, if there was no one who would watch us. Would I have enough of a strong will not to buy these snacks and drinks, or would I decide that since nobody is watching, I can buy something? I think I would not have bought it, but who knows how it would be under normal circumstances. Well, so this is basically Foucault embodied. I think this is a, a perfect example of government mentality at play. It also shows how children struggle um, to make the right choices, to be responsible, and how difficult it is. So just to conclude, and I think that my concluding remarks could also be points for discussion that would follow the talk. Childhood obesity lives in multiple spaces at the same time. In medical research and statistics, in the media, in the family and peer groups, and also in children's own experiences. And I think that there is this thing that it exists both at the population and individual scale, but what dominates when we frame childhood obesity, think about it and discuss it both within academic field, but also within public discourses, for instance, is the population scale. And the aim of my project is to show the experiences of children, to bring the individual experiences to play. Um, because children are not numbers, uh, and because obesity is not something that happened to children, but it's something that happens with children. Uh, so I'm interested in the relations between these charts and numbers and measures and ch children daily, children's daily embodied experiences. Uh, what happens when you find that your BMI is 36 and you do not fit into the chart? Or when you like yourself and your body, but some measure tells you that there is something wrong with you? And I think that there's a lot of unintended consequences of obesity talk or fat talk, as Susan Greenhall calls it. Part of it could be eating disorders. And actually, research shows that around 60% of teenage girls in Poland have distorted view of their body, think that they are fat, and diet in very risky ways. Hence, as I mentioned before, 
some doctors and epidemiologists would say that we do not really have a childhood obesity problem among teenage girls in Poland. Uh, and I think that those uh, unintended consequences are linked to merging obesity and overweight again. I think that the fact that those completely different experiences and completely different uh, embodiments of fat as well, when they're collated, they, they influence people's lives and children's lives especially in diverse, as I said, unintended ways. And finally, uh, my research demonstrates that children are more and more often now made responsible for their body's habits and health. And I think that that's just something we should continue researching and thinking about and talking about. Thank you very much. Thank you.